This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My usual co-host Kevin McLenathan is out this week, but I'm joined by Aaron White of the Fill in Film podcast to talk about the soon-to-be holiday classic Isam and Ian Nelms's Fat Man. Before that, though, we talk about the new movie from David Fincher, the Citizen Kane-inspired, or maybe the Citizen Kane-inspiring movie, Mank. All that's coming up on this episode, episode 273 of Seeing and Believing. LB, this is my brother, Joe. Nice to meet you, Joseph. Walk with me. What makes me cry? Emotion. Where do I feel emotion? Here, here. And here. Ah, <laughs> nerds. What's nerds? Nerds is Brooklynese for nuts. Jeepers. I expect more of you. Yes, listeners, we are here with episode 273. I am joined by Aaron White. Aaron White is a Seattle-based film critic and co-creator, co-host of the Fillin' film podcast. He's also a member of the Seattle Film Critics Society, which is a pretty big deal. He writes and reviews with a focus on the emotional experience he has with films. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh man, you're welcome. I'm so excited to be here. I was I was telling you this earlier before we started recording, but I've talked to Kevin in the past. I said, oh, we need to get Aaron on. I think he'd be good He'd be, you know, someone good to join us for a particular film or when one of us is out. And I just kind of slipped through the track uh, cracks. And when Kevin had to step out, and we'll talk more about that in a second, uh, I was like, well, I got to get I got to get Aaron. So I'm really excited to talk to you. And I do have to say, I enjoy your podcast. I also really enjoy you on Letterboxd. You're one of my favorite follows. <laughs> well, thank you. And here, here's the reason why. Okay, because in your bio... You have emotional experience, and that's what I get when I read your reviews. It just, it feels like you love movies, and I really do appreciate that. Wow. Well, thank you. I do. I do. And that's definitely the angle that I approach things from, and I think it's just important that we, you know, as long as we're upfront and clear about where we're coming from when we're reviewing movies, then we can be an effective critic and we're going to be the right person for somebody to listen to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I just, I always feel, I feel like there's a passion there. And and so that's exciting. So I, I really do love following your work. Now I mentioned this a second ago, Kevin, my usual co-host is out. He's going to be out for at least a few episodes because him and his wife, Kylie, just welcomed their first child Milo McLenathan. So th that's really exciting. And we, we talked a little bit. Yeah, last last episode a couple weeks ago. And he was like, baby should be coming any day. It happened, I think it was the day after we recorded. 
And so maybe there was something about the recording that just started the process. Who knows? <laughs> God's timing. Good stuff. Making it easy on you. Yeah, God's coming. So we uh, we're excited about that, and definitely our prayers are with Kevin and Kylie and Milo as they have this really cool first couple of months, which can be challenging, but it's just it really is amazing. So Kevin's going to be out, um, but Aaron, I'm I'm really glad you're here. This week's episode begins with a look at the much-anticipated new film from director David Fincher. We've alluded to this film in a number of different episodes. Here's the movie's official synopsis. 1930s Hollywood is reevaluated through the eyes of a scathing social critic and alcoholic screenwriter named Herman J. Mankiewicz, played by Gary Oldman, as he races to finish the screenplay of Citizen Kane for Orson Welles. Now, Aaron, before we jump into our discussion of the movie, I I first want to talk to you about a film that really kind of has to be at the forefront of any review of Mank. And that, of course, is Citizen Kane. We have to talk about Citizen Kane. So first up, and this is this really kind of, I, I guess, shows your tr- your street cred as a film <laughs> critic. <laughs> so what's your personal history uh, with that landmark project? And how did your feelings toward Orson Welles' masterpiece affect how you approached Fincher's movie? I love it. You're setting me up by calling it a masterpiece now. So like, if I don't think that I'm going to have to uh, you know, come back at you already, like, right off the bat, I've got to call myself out. We, we ha- yeah. I don't know what you think of Orson Welles uh, uh, Citizen Kane because we never talked about it. So, <laughs> well, I saw it for the first time, maybe three years ago, my okay. podcast had kind of just gotten started and I was going through a bunch of classics that I had not quite checked off my list for this very reason, because I wanted to have that street cred like you're talking about. And I rewatched it before Mank just to freshen up on it. And I feel the same way about it as I felt then, which is I enjoy it for its artistic brilliance. I think the cinematography, the structure for the time, especially the acting, all of that is exceptional. And I care way more about that than I do its story, which Hmm. I don't necessarily connect deeply to. I think that I have struggles sometimes when there are characters that I can't quite get to an empathetic place for uh, in a film. And the depiction of what I would call powerful narcissistic characters in Hollywood, uh, it it reminds me a lot of Fincher's The Social Network, uh, actually, the way that Citizen Kane plays out. And I just, there's something there that keeps me at a little bit of an arm's length with him as a person. And I don't really care too much about the politics of old Hollywood and how this film got made versus what the studio wanted to push and what the director was trying to get done and the writers were trying to do. But I enjoy the story of a man who grows up and has all of this wealth and even says at one point in the movie, very pointedly, you know, if I hadn't been very rich, I might have been a really great man. And we watch. <laughs> it's a great line. <laughs> you know, from a biblical perspective, it's easy to relate to that part of it because we can see very clearly how much money and power and the chasing of an American dream can lead you down a road that leaves an empty hole in your heart. I actually was thinking about that and how Rosebud, for me, evoked an old song this last time I was in. For some reason, I, I kid you mm-hmm. not, 
Holy Spirit or whatever, but like there's an old song I listened to when I was in youth group uh, by a band called Plum. I don't even know if they're still active. Probably not. <laughs> yeah. I, I never really listened to Plum, okay. but I do know of them. Well, they had they a song around. called God Shaped Hole. And okay. it's like, there's a God-shaped hole in all of us was the chorus. And I was like, oh, yeah. okay. Rosebud, like Rosebud, you have a Rosebud shaped hole. That's your God-shaped hole. And and that's uh-huh. what, you know, Charles Foster Kane. So I watch it through that lens and I enjoy it and I respect the absolute junk out of it, but I don't put it as my personal like favorite of all time or anything because it's not really a rewatchable for me. So that's where I stand. Yeah. No, no, that's a, that's a great way to describe it. And uh, I, I appreciate that. Now. I want to tell you what I think of Citizen Kane using a Reliant K song. No, I'm not going to do that. Okay, that would be awesome, though, if you actually could pull that out. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. Uh, No, so I, it is one of my favorite films of all time. You mentioned just the, the technical aspects of it, but that story and Citizen Kane's, just Kane's journey throughout that movie is is just, it's powerful in the way that it depicts what it means to get caught up in, like you said, the American dream and get caught up in greed. And really it's it's about control too, in that money, this lie that, that money can really open every single door that you want it to open. Uh, it can make anyone like you. It could create a star uh, if you if you really just put enough money and effort into it, but I I really do appreciate that film a lot. Uh, so so now that we've kind of set the stage, going into Mank, did you have any expectations? Did you feel like okay, you know anything's game because Citizen Kane is a movie I came to late, or did you walk in saying I really want something that honors the legacy or says something about the legacy? What was your approach as you watched Mank for the first time? Man, I was let down, and it's my own fault, to be honest. And I love that you kind of gave that lead up front about where I come from and how I like to talk about film and how I view film. I am not coming from a film historian perspective with this movie, and it was very clear right off the bat that that's the people that this movie was for. And it was not for just a general audience who wanted to get all emotional with a story and, and track it in an easy way is a love letter in my opinion to his dad and his dad had written the screenplay for this before he passed away like 20 years Mm -hmm. ago. It's very clear that Fincher without any studio interference was able to just kind of go nuts and make an full on homage to citizen Mm -hmm. Kane. And so I went into it, I guess unfairly I'll be straight up with you expecting and wanting more of a, the social network, but black and white. And with mm. the story of, you know, the background of Citizen Kane's script being written. And I didn't get that. I got something that was a lot more disjointed than I expected. And with a whole bunch of names of people that I wasn't familiar with and didn't find that compelling or interesting. And the ones that I did find compelling and interesting, I didn't feel like I got enough time with. And so it was a struggle for me to get through the movie. You know, it's it's funny you say that because... I felt like the movie lacked purpose as well. And Kevin and I, we, we talked about this movie. We were anticipating it in episode 246. It feels like years ago, but it was really in May. We ranked Fincher's movies because we were preparing for Mank. 
And I, I went into this with, with, I think, pretty high expectations and, and was kind of disappointed. You mentioned film history and classic Hollywood. I really do love classic Hollywood. I love learning about classic Hollywood. I've been watching more classic Hollywood pictures over the last couple of years. And so there were aspects of this movie that I very much appreciated. We could talk about maybe the dialogue. We could talk about some of the Easter eggs uh, across film history in this movie, but it did lack purpose. And it's funny because this is a movie I think you enjoy probably more if you know or understand some of these references, but it it felt like it got the Citizen Kane history wrong. Last year, I read a book, and I had mentioned this to you, Aaron, called Citizen Kane, A Filmmaker's Journey. It's by Harlan Lebeau, and it tells the story of how Citizen Kane was made, and it gets into some rich detail. And there's an entire section dedicated to how the screenplay was was put together and then also the battle with William Hurst to get this movie out. And it seemed like the connection between how the screenplay was created in real life versus how it's shown to be created in this movie and the influence that Hurst plays on it, it felt like it was exaggerated in the film because the film needed some sort of anchor I guess for some of its ideas. And so it feels like it exaggerates the inspiration behind that. All that to say is it's a movie that wants to please an audience in one way, but kind of betrays it in another way, if, if that makes sense at all. It does. I think it does. I mean, it doesn't make sense to me in, and I understand the history and exactly mm. where you're coming from since, but it feels like that to an outside viewer as well, mm. uh, that mm-hmm. it doesn't, quite have it doesn't feel like it honors citizen kane to be frank it doesn't i don't have like it doesn't it's a love letter technically speaking because hmm. of the way that it mimics it and it you know uses black and white and the the angles and it straight up copies some of its shots yeah. um, at times which i enjoy that kind of stuff very much and but the character just it doesn't feel like it's in love with Citizen Kane. It it almost feels like it's just going through the motions and showing us this really awful experience that happened in order to get that movie made. And maybe that's the point that it wants to make, but I don't know that that's really that interesting to a lot of viewers. Mm -hmm. I couldn't connect with that. And the person I connected with was Amanda Seyfried's character, Marion Davies, Mm -hmm. who's I think is the best performance in the film for me. And I didn't get a lot of her. She was, she was, I think, probably more like my emotional anchor to the film. And so mm-hmm. that's why I connected with her. And so I wanted to see more about her story and the relationships that she had with Hearst and with Mank. And I just felt like those interesting carrier characters on the periphery around mm-hmm. Gary Oldman's character of Mank were more rich. And Gary Oldman was just doing a drunk genius kind of mm. act and just really hamming it up for the most part. And it didn't do much for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Oldman did well in what he was asked to do. It, it, it literally feels like he was drunk while he was this entire picture. Like he just, he, he got drunk, he did his lines and, and he was done. But 
I agree with you. I I didn't really connect too much with this with this character and the side characters. Some of them were. were very rich. And you mentioned uh, Amanda Seyfried's character. Uh, she was great. And I, I think it's fine, her kind of being on the sidelines. But if you're going to do that, you need a strong central character. I think, too, the, the framing was fascinating to me. At the beginning of the movie, I was very interested in how they were going to tell this story because there are references to Mank being like Moses, references to a burning bush, and then Mank gets in a car accident and that's when Orson Welles comes to see him. And so it really feels like there's this divine intervention to get him to a particular place. And then when we do see Orson Welles character come, it feels like a dream. Uh, the, the camera's a little bit blurry. Uh, Orson Welles's character is, he's an imposing figure who sort of stands over Mank as Mank is attempting to begin his recovery after the the car accident and i was i was scratching my chin because uh, thinking to myself oh this is this is going to frame the movie citizen kane as this masterpiece of art and sort of this divine reckoning with the film industry and the and the rest of the movie will watch as that plays out and then it it slowly just kind of begins to stumble and in the end maybe this is kind of a weird a weird comparison but i started to feel like the movie was almost um slumdog millionaireing it if that makes sense so slumdog millionaire you have this character and they're answering the uh, the contestant uh, the, the trivia questions. And then we go back and we figure out, oh, this is how, this is how he knows that answer. This is one of those movies where, oh, you know, Citizen Kane. Now we're going to go back and say, oh, this is this scene. And this is what made him write this, which I think really distorts what it means to be a writer and the artistic vision of this script. Yeah. I think that, isn't there a bunch of uh, divisiveness around uh, how much Mank actually contributed to the script too in the first place, and and that was kind mm-hmm. of you know you were getting at a little bit earlier with the history not necessarily lining up, and so that's a little problematic. Is the movie really makes it out to be that he was seemingly extremely involved and responsible for a large chunk of it, and I think that he's operating on a very vindictive level against Hollywood, you said, you know, kind of, he's going after retribution and I don't know, that's not exactly a quality in someone that I can usually get behind. Um, (laughs) From just a Christian or moral perspective, that's not for us to do. And so when I watch him as a character doing that, it's all well and good to see it depicted, even if that is what drove Mank himself to want to write this screenplay that sort of takes down some of the Hollywood elites um, quietly and subtly, but it's just difficult to latch on to the film and enjoy it when I'm watching it. Mm-hmm. Even if it's done accurately or not, but even if it's done technically superb, I'll tell you, the film has some scenes that I really enjoy, and those are the old Hollywood scenes. There's a film, or not a film, there's a scene where they're in a writer's room, and they're discussing 
with studio execs what can and can't be in a story how are we going to create a story mm. and it and it was just yeah. i loved that i loved that moment and just hearing the different perspectives try to figure out what was going to sell <laughs> and versus one person coming from a creative uh, perspective and the others trying to do it from this financial uh, perspective and then i i love some scenes where we got to see on set on old hollywood sets filming Oh, and yeah. we, how the camera work was being done and that kind of stuff was fascinating. I would have liked a lot more of that and a lot less politic talk. Yeah. Okay. So there are a number of, yeah, fantastic scenes. There's one scene and it's a, a dinner party scene. It's not the one at the end, which I think is, is really not good. Uh, but it's, it's more towards the front of the film. You know, they filmed that a hundred times. Did you read that? hundred. No, David Fincher made them do a hundred plus takes of that final scene, and it still <laughs> sucks. I don't, I don't understand. Well, it, yeah, and it's not the performances either. Um, and I don't want to go into too much detail, but yeah, it's just it's 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 not good. So there are there are some scenes that I thought were 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 fantastic, but then there's this, and here's what I mean probably by the purpose, and it feels like it doesn't have a purpose, it doesn't have a pathway. There is this large section of the film where they talk about classic Hollywood and some of the big players backing a Republican versus someone else that they're trying to frame as a socialist. And that that really didn't fit this movie, uh, it felt like, because this seemed to be a movie about, about artistic integrity. It seemed to be a movie about artistic integrity and inspiration in the midst of this big classic Hollywood machine. And, you know, we think about the big blockbusters today and, you know, Disney is a machine or the MCU is a machine, classic Hollywood, MGM, Paramount, you know, the Warner Brothers, those were machines. Uh, and that that whole political section of the movie just feels like it loses it loses all sort of momentum and all sort of steam. And I wonder, I've, I've heard a number of people kind of tuning off at that point. And it really kind of makes sense because it just feels aimless to me. Yeah, I don't think that this is a film that is going to appeal to people. I wrote that in a bit of a review on Facebook just to let general audience members who follow me know, like, you're going to see this pop up when you turn on Netflix this weekend. It's going to say, man, they're going to be promoting it. And some people are going to be like, oh, it looks cool. It's like an old Hollywood story in black and white. And <laughs> it's not for them. You know, it's for a very specific group of people. And I had a question for you about whether, how you felt about that. Do you think that that's okay? Does every movie need to appeal to everybody? And then along those lines, the irony of the story of control of writing this script and this movie that's being made in the, in the movie, Citizen Kane is kind of paralleling the fact that here's David Fincher, who for the first time ever has no studio interference because he's got a blank mm -hmm. check from Netflix and complete control. And this is what we get. Something that, in my opinion, really could have benefited from a bunch of different eyes on it saying, we need to trim this. We need to do this. We need to make it a little bit more accessible and we need to kind of move these pieces around just a bit. And without that, do you think that People like David Fincher, even even the greats, he's he's one of my favorites of all time, can mm -hmm. lose sight because they're too close to that project. Yeah, I mean, it's tough to say. It really is tough to say uh, because you have someone like 
Martin Scorsese who comes out with The Irishman and it's, you know, how many hours long Netflix gives him all the money in the world to make it. And I think it's fantastic. I think The Irishman is, is great. And I don't think that every movie needs to appeal to everyone. I mean, first of all, I mean, it's just impossible. It, 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 it that will never happen. Uh, I don't think that it needs to do that. But at the same time, Netflix has made a huge investment, so they're going to try to appeal to as many people as as possible. It, there is a meta quality to it, isn't it? If if this is a if this is a film about a writer who's fighting for credit, and the whole history of that, it's 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 a lot to take in. But the question of okay, he wrote the screenplay, but Orson Welles, he's really good at editing and scratching and cutting down. So how much credit should he get? The film seems to side with Mankiewicz here. And to add to that meta quality, uh, David Fincher's father wrote this script and he receives credit on it. So there's, there's kind of a lot happening. And I appreciate, I appreciate the guts that Fincher has in telling this story and really not coming at it and saying, Oh, I want to appeal to everybody. Like I want to, I want to tell the story that I want to tell. Uh, in the end though, it just, it lacks purpose. There are a couple things, though, I, I will say about the movie. There are some montages. There's like an election light, uh, night montage that's really good. Some really good scenes. I like some of the dialogue. The dialogue is very punchy, oh, very classic Hollywood, almost noirish. And I appreciate some of that dialogue, uh, too. So I think there are things to like. You're not David Fincher for nothing, right? He has skill. He is... He is a great director, uh, so there are qualities about this movie that I do enjoy. But yeah, I mean, Aaron, I really think you're getting at some of the problems that this film has, both in its script and its execution. Well, listeners, that is our review of David Fincher's Mank. It is currently streaming on Netflix. We'd love to get your thoughts. There are some people who really do like this movie. If that's you, let us know. If you didn't like the movie, we'd also love to hear from you. You can tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere because we're going to be back in just a moment and we're going to be talking about Fat Man. It is a real movie. We'll be discussing that here in just a bit. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made more, bursted hot as iron, water like a stone. That song is Snow on Snow, The Bleak Midwinter by Rule Royale. 
Listeners, I want to take an opportunity to say a big thanks for everyone who supports us via our Patreon campaign. We're going to get back to our show in just a minute. We're going to be talking about Fat Man. But before we do, I just want to express my gratitude for all of you who keep us going week after week. If you'd like to support our Patreon channel, just hop on over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. Also, you can support us by rating and reviewing us on Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It's super simple. Just search Seeing and Believing. You'll see our icon. Give us a star rating. And if you can, type out a quick review. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption. Written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Maybe it's time I retired the coat. You just need a break. We're all feeling it this year. I've lost my influence. You're an icon. People love you. I'm a silly fat man in a red suit. I mean, you think it's cute, but this is what people actually think of me. Christmas is a farce. I'm a joke. There hasn't been any real spirit of the season anymore. Not for years. Let's just get a few days out on this. That will give you a better perspective. I should have charged them royalties for my image. Now, that's what we should have done. That's not who we are. No, we're only the largest economic stimulus in the entire world. Christmas generates $3 trillion in the U.S. alone. We can't even pay our power bill. You think there's something wrong with that? Oh, is that how we're measuring success now? Well, that's what they care about. They put up with us so they can sell their toys and sodas and cars. We're a business. And don't kid yourself, Ruth. Altruism is not a deductible on their bottom line. Don't put it all on them. You've changed, too. You might be right. Maybe I'm just like them. You still have it. All I have is a loathing for a world that's forgotten. Well, Aaron, we have finally reached tonight's main event. Our review of Esham and Eam's Nel... Uh, sorry, let me, let me start that over here. Well, Aaron, we have finally reached tonight's main event. Our review of Esham and Ian Nelms's Fat Man. I have to read the movie's synopsis because it's just so rich. To save his declining business, Chris Kringle, played by Mel Gibson also known as Santa Claus, is forced into a partnership with the U.S. military. Making matters worse, Chris gets locked into a deadly battle of wits against a highly skilled assassin played by Walton Goggins. Who else would play that part? Hired by a precocious 12-year-old after receiving a lump of coal in his stocking. Tis the season for Fat Man to get even in the action comedy that keeps on giving. Now, as I googled this film to pull up that synopsis, one of the autofill results, Aaron, was 
Is Fat Man a real movie? And I am here <laughs> to tell you <laughs> that it is very much a real movie, listeners. So my question to get us started is this. Do you think Fat Man makes the most of its absurd premise, or does the film end up playing it too safe in the end? I remember when that trailer came out and people in my Facebook group from my podcast were all doing the same thing. They were like, this can't be real. Like, this is just a joke. This has got to be, it's Mel Gibson. Like he wouldn't really be doing this. Um, it does deliver for me and I've watched it twice now. And okay. Yeah. yeah. So that will tell you something like I chose to watch it again and I watched it again because I liked it. It is a lot of fun and it's so over the top at times. And yet there's a lot going on underneath the surface. And I like movies that kind of have a subtle mention of some sort of commentary, social commentary or, you know, economic mm-hmm. commentary. And in this one, it does that. And it has just like a line here and there that'll get dropped that'll make a reference to the current world situation and maybe why Mm -hmm. it is the way it is, but it doesn't go into depth. It keeps it moving along. It's really just nuts that you have this 12 year old kid who hires an assassin. And you mentioned Walton Goggins, his character in this felt to me like he had just basic and part of it's because he's in the snow with it, you know, part of the movie, but like, (laughs) it felt like he had just walked out of the hateful eight. (laughs) <laughs> and walked into this movie, you know, just in a different time. Like he back to the future did, you know, only I guess. Yes. Yeah. To the, you know, and then he walked <laughs> into this one as an assassin and it just, it's such a similar character. And for some reason it works. I think the performance uh, by Gibson is really good as a weathered Santa Claus. And I'll tell you what grounds this movie for me and makes it really successful is its relationships and i'm the feeling guy and i love the relationship between chris kringle and his wife they have this incredible supportive relationship that is loving and caring and understanding and it's forgiving and it's just genuine and it's a really sweet thing to see likewise santa's relationship with his elves And the way that they depict magic in this movie, the magic of the elves and the magic of Santa Claus, it's not, you know, overly done or explained in a way. They just kind of drop little jokey nods to things like Santa mentioning he has super strength or something because of steroids. And it's wonderfully (laughs) integrated. It it keeps it realistic for me. Uh And it makes it feel like, you know what? Santa Claus could actually exist in this world. And in this world that we live in today, it's not unheard of that the U.S. military would try to take out a contract with him to have them help, (laughs) you know, create. (laughs) Luckily, it's not like totally weapons of mass destruction or something that they're creating. Um, But I love the relationships in this movie and the way that the good guys worked out. And it's it's a revenge flick. I mean, the kid and the assassin are scorned. They're jaded because they essentially got coal. And they've had some bad life uh, experiences growing up. They're needed in need of attention and in need of Christmas joy. And they didn't have it. And this is how they're lashing out. And it ends up being just a, a hoot, I think. 
<laughs> no. I, okay, so yeah, I've been I've been to the theater uh, once. I saw Tenet since since you know March one time, and then a, a group of us from work rented out a theater for this film. My business partner was just like, we got to see it. So there was just like four or five of it, five of us there, and I gotta say, it was such a fun time. We were just eating popcorn and cracking up and yelling at the screen and it we we just had a wonderful time watching this movie. So that experience kind of colors my perspective, but I I walked out of the film and I said, "Guys, that wasn't really a, a movie about Santa. It was a it was a movie about marriage." And it's weird to say, but the film knows when to really kind of play it straight and when to get uh, a little kooky. Uh, but some of these relationships are played extremely straight and they're kind of tender. This relationship between uh, Marianne Jean-Baptiste, who plays Ruth, Santa's wife, and Mel Gibson is, is a tender relationship. And they deal with things like we deal with, how to pay the bills. And how to go from year to year in that you know same old profession and i i i thought it was uh it was actually pretty unusual to see that in a movie like this i don't know if the movie hits all the notes that it needs to hit but it's a fascinating film and i did enjoy it and i could see it becoming one of those kind of cult classics as the years go by yeah, it's lacking a little bit. I think, you know, you can tell that maybe they don't have it quite as tight and they don't understand the tonal shifts as well as maybe I would have liked. I think that it does tend to go from kooky to straight in a snap and it doesn't mm-hmm. and it goes back and forth maybe a little too much for my liking. But there is the underpinnings of just a really great Christmas classic, like you said here, just that's completely different than anything else. It reminds me a lot of kind of the way that I feel about Krampus. I don't love okay. horror movies, but I love Krampus and I watch it mm. at Christmas because it's kooky and silly and it's funny and it's different than, you know, my normal Christmas slate of feel good, holly jolly, you know, sweet, tender movies. And it's good. It's got, I think that there's just so much going on beneath the surface in this movie with the way that, they are addressing the state of the world. And Chris Kringle talks about how they get put in this position where, you know, they need to create funds. And it's because there, there's so many kids now he talks about that are essentially getting coal, right? Like Mm -hmm. that there aren't enough good people in the world is the bottom line. And so it comments on that. And the story that is actually taking place is, parallel to that idea and it's also about just having a disillusionment of hope for a better world and how that can be transformed at quote christmas time and we can start to see things anew and especially for christians uh, and, and things all things made new fat man in this movie is very much almost like a god figure because he doesn't just give toys to the good people and coal to the bad people he actually goes beyond that and 
sort of dispenses justice <laughs> as well, which is not something you're used to Santa doing. Uh, mm. And so it gives that character a neat new spin. And it's just, I just really liked watching it. And again, I, I agree with you whole, wholeheartedly. I don't think it's like perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a surprising treat. Yeah, it, it definitely carries. It's, so it's, it is a comedy. It's a dark comedy for our listeners who are trying to figure out what, what's the genre here. It, it does carry this weariness uh, that's associated with, I think, I mean, 2020, just this idea that things seem to, at, at the very best, uh, s- they stay the same. Uh, at the worst, they're just getting worse every single year. And Santa carries that. And I gotta say, Walton Goggins, and here, here's the thing, Walton Goggins and Mel Gibson, what I love about the movie is these two characters, these two actors commit 100% to their roles. This is not, I'm just here for a payday. And this is not, you know, Mel Gibson still trying to stage a comeback. He is committing to this character. And there are some moments that, just are some of the funniest i think of 2020 so uh there's a i don't know if you would call it a subplot but goggins is really attached to his hamster and there are a couple of scenes that are just like kind of random where he shops for hamster miscellaneous items and you could have cut that out of the movie and the story be fine and it seems like on a lot of films they probably would have just cut that out but it's here and it's idiosyncratic and it's strange and weird and hilarious. There's this other scene where I'm not going to spoil it, but Goggins has a conversation, a very short conversation with a mail carrier. And the way it ends is just so bizarre, but just so funny. And when the film can balance that absurd humor, it works well. I really love the big standoff at the end. Before that, there's a firefight. I'm not a huge fan of it because it's just really kind of cut and dry. Um, but when we get to see Santa, Mel Gibson, and Goggins go at it, I mean, it's great. And, and I love the line where, you know, Goggins is like, I'm coming for you, fat man. And Mel Gibson just looks, and with all sincerity in his heart, he goes, you think you're the first. And it just kills me yeah. every time to think about that line. I want to add, just because I think this is important, and it was one of the things that stuck out so big to me watching it the first time, there is an element of the movie where the military essentially works with the elves. And and the thing that I appreciate about this so much is that the military doesn't treat them like jerks. They institute new rules and new procedures that are very military-like, and I am a Navy vet, uh, for almost 20 years. And so mm-hmm. I have a strong background in this and in movies, I love war movies, but they almost always portray the military in these situations as coming into something and taking it over and then treating the people who are not military, the civilians in this case mm-hmm. as lesser than, or just without respect. And that doesn't take place in this movie. Instead, they care about each other. They learn from each other. They defend each other and when it comes time to that to that to happen and i just really latched on to that and was like why is this relationship between a fake military and little elves (laughs) you know like why am i responding (laughs) to this so deeply but it's because you don't see it and 
much like the relationships between, you know, Chris and his wife, it's, they're just, they're really nicely drawn in this movie and they're not made to make you feel bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I could just hear some people there listening to this review and they're like saying, well, like what like what are you talking about like this relationship between the military and else but but it is and and there's a moment too where uh there are individuals in the military that are sacrificing themselves to try to save elves and you're just like yeah like you're you're just like oh wow that's awesome like that's you know it's really great uh i wish that that thread would have been pushed a little bit further in terms of maybe doing a little bit more with that military occupation because it's almost when you get to the end of it, it starts to feel like, oh, okay, they're just kind of there so so the, these characters can have individuals to shoot at. So I wanted to see a little bit more then. Um, but I do I do like what you're talking about, Aaron, and just this kind of relationship and them coming in. And we can tell that it may not be a good match. I mean, the military is using Santa Claus to build parts for the military. But in the end... It could be good for Chris Kringle. It, yeah, it's it's just really fascinating. You gotta have you gotta watch it to be able to kind of get into that that space. It's got great pacing too. It moves at a brisk pace. It, it gets it gets in, it gets out, and I love movies that do that that don't linger too long. It's not a two hour movie. It doesn't overly stay its welcome. Yeah, no, uh, that's that's definitely true, listeners. That is our take on Fat Man. It is currently available to rent on VOD, so you can check that out and and watch it uh, for this Christmas. And we'd love to get your thoughts on it. This is one of those movies that anytime I've come across people who've seen it, I was like, okay, what do you think of this scene? What do you think of that scene? And it's been a good conversation starter. Make sure to tweet us at Pod or email us seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. We have reached the end of our episode, and at this point, we recommend to you, our listeners, something from the world of television and or film that we've recently saw or read. It's making the rounds, and we'd like to introduce it to you. Aaron, thank you again for coming on. What would you like to introduce or talk about, recommend to our listeners this week? I have a movie, but I just heard you say TV and our movies. Have you guys talked about Ted Lasso yet? You know, we have not. I have three episodes left, okay. and I am loving it. Okay, uh, you should just talk about it when you're done, then, because it's. <laughs> but just make sure you mention it. And I'm, that just we'll call that an extra needle drop or something. But okay, it is my favorite piece of media, probably in the last several years. And I'm not a TV guy. I'll say that. Yeah, yeah. But I do love sports, and it is phenomenal the way that that show is just people overuse the phrase like the thing we need right now uh-huh. but in terms of joy and hopefulness and just genuine heartfelt storytelling it's awesome i love it so i'm glad you're watching it that's good yeah so i have yeah i've just got a handful of episodes left and been trying to get through some movies so i haven't quite finished it but at the same time i'm taking it very slow because each little episode is just it's wonderful and so many jokes and I've even thought hey, maybe we could get somebody on and, and talk about it on the podcast, review it because uh, yeah, just it's it's a lot of fun. You should. It's good. Well, let me jump into my movie real quick. It's so the movie that I'm going to recommend is actually something I got around to today during my own kind of catch up from 2020 films that I've missed mm-hmm. um, before I do some awards voting. And 
this is an animated film uh, put out by G Kids, uh, and it's called Ride Your Wave, and it's from the director Masaki Yuasa. And this is here's the premise. It's this, the simple premise is a surfer and a firefighter fall in love. Of course, it's bigger than that. It's an anime, so it's a Japanese movie that is a romantic drama. And it starts off as this cute love story. Um, and then it quickly becomes something very different uh, um, into a character study, essentially, of accepting and dealing with the grief of loss when one of the characters loses the other one. And it was such an amazing emotional watch for me. Uh, I love films like this. I love Makoto Shinkai's movies, such as Your Name and Weathering With You, two of my absolute favorites. Mm -hmm. And this feels very much in the vein of something like that. And it just blew me away. It has fantasy elements to it. This director usually does have something like that baked into his film, as a lot of anime does. But it's not overly done to where it kind of overshadows the realism of the movie. It gave me very strong musical vibes a la 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 Land, another absolute personal favorite of mine. Uh, it teaches you how to make great coffee in it, which is <laughs> a lot of fun and also animated really well. Um, and it's just uh, incredibly uh, nuanced the way that it handles these emotional aspects of these characters' lives, um, whether it be friendship or romance, um, death, love, etc. And I really hope that critics will get around to seeing this. Anime films almost never get nominated for Academy Awards. It seems they just get forgotten, unfortunately. And I always hope that smaller critics groups will be able to uh, champion them. And this is probably going to be the one for me this year. It, I think, might be my favorite animated film of the year. Okay. Uh, I watched it on Hoopla. I don't know if you know what Hoopla is, but mm -hmm. um, service that can be tied to your local library system. Yeah. And you can rent and check out films for free. And they had it at mine, both in the Japanese and the English um, dubbed versions, just for free rentals. Um, you can also rent it or buy it on various streaming services available on Amazon Prime. And there's a Blu-ray out there that's less than 20 bucks. Uh, it's the kind of movie that almost never happens for me, but I thought about it all day. And I just want to watch it again. And I can't because mm -hmm. I've got so many movies on my checklist to get through. <laughs> yeah. But the the way it depicts this post-relationship depression and living with grief and this intimacy of how two people meet and go through this summer falling in love, sharing passion, and the way that they're tied together. And there's a song in it as well that is a really cute and catchy pop song that plays as a theme uh, in a very specific way that is integral to the plot over and over throughout the movie. And it is going to get stuck in your head. And I wasn't even mad about that because it was just such a great little fun song with a good message. So ride your wave. That's my recommendation for your listeners. I have heard just little things about that movie. And I know that it has some, some big fans. I haven't had a chance to catch up with it yet, but your review makes me want to prioritize it for my end of the year watching. Cause I, like you, I have just, there's so many movies I need to catch before the end of the year, or at least in the beginning weeks of January for my, for my top 10. But that's a great recommendation. And I'm glad you mentioned Hoopla. It has some good films on there. I know we reviewed a movie, uh, Kevin and I did, uh, it was, 
Driveways, which is fantastic. That's a movie that I found on Hoopla too, so you can uh, check that out. But another resource for our listeners. Well, Aaron, my recommendation this week is actually is going to be a book, and I mentioned it earlier, and that's from Harlan LeBeau. It's Citizen Kane, a filmmaker's journey. Yeah, you can check it out. I actually listened to this uh, via uh, an audiobook on Audible, and it gives a fantastic history of Citizen Kane, and it it becomes pretty detailed at times, listing out all of the special effects shots that were used, talking through some of the main characters and what they went on to do, as well as side characters, and uh, even characters with just a few lines. So you really feel like you know Citizen Kane after you finish this book. It also gives a great discussion of the Mank controversy that we talked about when we reviewed David Fincher's film, and I think it does a a fantastic job of really just kind of parsing that particular bump in the road. And then, of course, the latter half of the book deals with the whole Hearst controversy and just that film getting released in theaters and how difficult that was. So fantastic book if you've got the time for it. It's called Citizen Kane, A Filmmaker's Journey by Harlan LeBeau. Aaron, once again, thank you so much for hopping on today. If our listeners want to learn more about your work, where can they find you? Well, you can catch my podcast, uh, as you described at the beginning of the show, with an emotional tint to the way we talk about movies. It's very spoilery, I will say. Um, our main episodes on the show are full thematic discussions, so you'll want to have seen the film before you can listen to us. But you can find us at Podcast Carriers Everywhere under Phelan, and it's F-E-E-L-I-N apostrophe film. Uh, you can also find us at phelanfilm.com, and you can interact with me on Facebook, uh, Aaron White, Aaron E-L-W-H-I-T-E is my handle everywhere. So if you type that in, you'll find everything from my Twitter account to my Instagram to my PlayStation username. Uh, <laughs> and then you can also get us on Twitter at Feeling film, where is the place? That's the place where I talk about movies exclusively on Twitter. My other Twitter account is more for you know, sports and all that other good stuff. But I'm happy to talk about that too. I'm a social media. I probably use it too much, Wade, to be honest. But <laughs> there you go. If you want to chat, I'm your guy. Yeah, well, and I, I'm an SEC football guy. I'm a big Georgia Bulldog fan. I know you're a Razorback fan. Your, your team is on the up. I'm excited you. for you. Because and you so gave us a I, coach. <laughs> <laughs> we gave you Sam Pittman, so we're excited about that. But no, I I, I appreciate following you and, and following all of that. So listeners, definitely check out Aaron's work. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden, and until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. We'll see you later. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. This episode was brought to you in part 
by Wheaton College's MA in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu/hdl.